Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 270, recorded October 13th, 2010, The Ever Cookie. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express. If you're tired of traveling to fix tech support problems in person, resolve them quickly online with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, go to gotoassist.com slash security. And by... Carbonite Pro. With prices starting at $10 a month, all of your office PCs can be backed up safely and automatically. For a free trial and to learn more, visit CarbonitePro.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers and protects your security online and privacy, too. And here he is, the man of the hour, the man who has done more, I think, to protect our security than almost anybody else, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, creator of Shields up, spin right, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility, and a great many security utilities, including the very first anti-spyware. Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. Nice to see you. Yeah. Today, we're going to cover something that a lot of people have been asking about. Yes. In fact, it was. I almost sort of sidestepped it because I thought, well, we talked about the EFF effort with Panopticlick and the idea that just sort of passively our web surfing offers enough hints about our identity to be trackable, which is what our Panopticlick um, episode of Security Now, I don't know, a few weeks ago, a month ago or so, uh, covered. But the Ever Cookie is different enough that I, and, and so many people were writing in about it. And then when I saw a friend of mine sent a link that the New York Times had picked up on it. Yeah. I thought, oh, okay, this, I mean, this is what the podcast is for, is right. to talk about these kinds of things. And when I looked at it closely, I was, I was very, frankly, very impressed because there are some very clever things that the developer, um, uh, Sammy Kamkar is the guy who did it at sammy.pl. S-A-M-Y, one M, S-A-M-Y dot P-L, and his page is S-A-M-Y dot P-L slash Evercookie. So, um, basically, he's come up with with a cookie that is frighteningly sticky, frighteningly difficult to get rid of. And and the some of the things are generic. Some are super clever. So definitely a great topic for the podcast, and that's what we're talking about this week. The Ever Cookie. I wish there were... It sounds like something that, that Willy Wonka might invent. A cookie that you can never finish, but in fact, it's not so nice. Before yeah. we get to that, let's uh, talk a little bit to the folks who uh, specialize, and I know there are a lot of you, in supporting friends, family. You've got a support guy who works for you, Steve, supporting uh, the software. People yep. in the IT department, the IT help desk. You need often a way that you can remotely access... 
your customers' computers. I mean, it would be so nice, wouldn't it, if you could just reach in and fix it? I often wish that on the radio show. Just let me hit the computer. It'll take me three. It's easier to fix it than to explain what's wrong. And certainly easier to fix it than to tell them step by step how to do it. So this is a great way that you can become a support hero. You can grow your business without being two places at once. You could support your customers remotely up to uh, up to eight sessions simultaneously, too, which is nice. You could do it unattended if you want. And your customers don't have to have the software installed ahead of time. This is where Citrix really shines. Go to, Citrix is the maker. Go to Assist Express. So here's the deal. You go there right now. Go to assist.com slash security and install it. And you can do it free for 30 days, by the way. And, uh, and now the next time you're on the phone with somebody saying, okay, click the start menu. Okay, right, right click on my computer, select manage. You don't want to go through that. Next time you just say, okay, here's the deal. Uh, open your browser, go to, go to assist.com, enter this, enter this uh, support ticket number. They will. They don't have to have any software installed. They just go to the website. The website installs the software quickly and easily, and now you're in. And from then on, you can get in unattended if, if they allow you. You can, you can drag and drop files from your computer to theirs. You can give them control of your, or show them what, what it's supposed to look like on your computer so you can see the problem. Two-way screen sharing. Integrated live chat so you can explain what you're doing while you're doing it. It works on Macs and PCs, fully cross-platform, so you can fix a PC from a Mac and vice versa. It tells you what software is running, including security software. That's very valuable. I can just go on and on. This thing is perfect for the Support Pro. It's designed for the Support Pro. And uh, with years of experience uh, doing it, I think there's nobody better than Citrix for this. Go to assist.com slash security. Try it free for 30 days if you like it. You'll find it's very affordable. They also have you know monthly uh, subscriptions, but they also have day pass, which means if you do this occasionally it's a really great solution for somebody you know just accumulate all of the friends and relatives tickets and including that ever cookie question and do it all at once go to assist.com slash security we thank them so much for their support of security now before we get to ever cookies i imagine you have some updates and uh, so forth yeah some interesting uh news um first of all we're just past the second tuesday of october which of course is everyone's favorite patch tuesday microsoft um broke their own record which they had previously set i guess they would always be previously setting their own record anyway um <laughs> no one else is setting it let's put it that way however what's interesting is it was last october uh last, last october of 09 was the previous record that microsoft set for their own number of vulnerabilities fixed they have exceeded that exactly one year later october of 2010 with 49 security vulnerabilities fixed in a set of 16 bundles um 35 of which are remote code execution vulnerabilities so you know there's various types there's you know, obviously, remote code execution is bad guy gets to run his own code in your machine without your knowledge or permission. Then there's, you know, privilege escalation and um, information leakage and, you know, different sort of classes of problems. This one, 35 of these 49 were things that, when exploited, would allow someone to run their code in your machine, which is never a good thing. You know, they're not they're not helping you. They're not fixing <laughs> <laughs> They're not upgrading apps that you forgot to. So um, uh, many of them 
were publicly disclosed before the patch. So everyone is breathing a sigh of relief that um, these uh, Microsoft has caught up. Um, several of them were zero-day surprises to Microsoft, where Microsoft first learned of them by them being found in the wild being used. Um, there were two zero-day vulnerabilities, which the uh, Stuxnet worm slash the zombie Trojan, whatever that we've talked about extensively um, was using. They fixed one of those two. So that's good. Um, I.E. both uh, versions six through eight, all of those versions got 10 security holes fixed. And interestingly, several of them were critical, even under Windows 7 and I.E. 8 which generally has been more resistant to these problems. So, in fact, it is more resistant to these problems, but several of them got by anyway. And then one thing that will affect users aside from all this is that the, as part of this bundle of updates, Microsoft updated the, um, the, their MSRT tool. Um, and they've finally updated it to detect the Zeus Trojan, which is that online banking capture your credentials Trojan that's been causing so much havoc. And so I wanted to remind people that normally the software removal tool, the MSRT, is only run monthly by Microsoft. That is, you know, at some point after it gets updated, they'll run it. But anyone can run it on demand and it just sort of feels good to do it. it you, it's not MSRT, it's just MRT. So if you just go in like under the start menu and choose the run dot 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 option, you'll get a little field there saying, what do you want me to run? And just put MRT in with no extensions or anything else and hit enter. And that'll fire up the, the, the software removal tool, which will then offer to scan your machine right there sort of while you're waiting. And you you can ask it to do a deeper scan than it otherwise normally does. And it just might be a good thing to do after they've made a major update to it as they have this month. Yeah, it's important Sorry. to note that they don't do a, a full thorough scan when every Tuesday, every patch Tuesday. You They only Correct. do kind of a quick one. So it's a good idea once in a while to do a thorough one. I presume that it, gives you a different result. Well, it potentially finds things that the, the, that the overview scan won't find. So right. definitely worth doing. Right. We uh, also had a major Java technology update. In fact, Oracle, at the beginning of this month, I think it might have been Tuesday or Monday, had like a major corporate-wide huge update of their software across the board. Most of us aren't going to be affected by that, except for those of us who have Java installed. They're now at six at version six update twenty two, which um, fixed twenty nine different security holes. So it was a big one, and among other things, they did fix their um, TLS slash SSL renegotiation hole, which um, their own implementation of the of the TLS technology, the TLS protocol had not yet fixed, so they fixed that. They added some um, new root CAs to to their own private um, store of root certificate authorities and otherwise just fixed a bunch of stuff. So I did notice on my main machine somehow I've managed to survive so far without anything installing Java, which I'm pleased about. Um, <laughs> you know, it but, used to be you, you, it came with Java, and, and, and even if it didn't, you'd almost always have Java, and now that's really changed. Java's yeah. not everywhere anymore. 
it's not and i'm i'm seeing people saying that it's becoming an increasing problem from a security standpoint so i mean i'm glad it's not on my main machine and there've been a number of people who following other security experts advice have removed it from their system and nothing's broken you know it's like maybe something that they once installed brought it along and then they removed it or they stopped using it and it sort of stayed behind which is you know it wants to do it wants to be an extension to your os to provide its own virtual execution environment you know the whole jvm the java virtual machine which is able to run in browsers and also execute apps natively on your on your platform but it's one of those things where if you don't need it it's you're better off without it yeah um in any event it's updated and then i did want to mention that foxit reader is now at version 4.2. Many people have switched away from yeah. the Adobe PDF reader over to Foxit as just something much less lightweight. Boy, I noticed the other day how big Adobe Reader has become. It's huge yeah. now. Yeah. I, I mean, use Foxit. I really like it. Tens of megabytes mm. of, you know, of bloat from Adobe. And they had like a classic buffer overflow, uh, overflow problem where PDF files that contained a title longer than 512 characters. And we, of course, know what that number is. That's two to the power of nine. So, yeah, that was, you know, some programmers said, oh, 512 characters. No, no one's going to have a PDF title longer than that. <laughs> and so that whoever that was statically allocated a buffer to contain the PDF title and apparently didn't check to see whether the title might actually be longer than that. Turns out that it will crash the reader if you load a PDF larger than 500 with a, with a title lar- larger than 512 characters, which potentially opens a door to a buffer of overrun exploitation. So that's been fixed at version 4.2 and hopefully from there on. Excellent. In news, one thing caught my eye that I just thought I had to bring up because it was like, uh oh. And that was um, our well known. Um, major content distribution network, Akamai, had one of their employees charged with wire fraud Uh because his name is Elliot Doxer. His name's been in the news. A few years ago, actually in 06, when this began, he was 42. He approached a U.S. consulate of an unnamed foreign government offering them insider information. Hmm. Now, the good news is the consulate immediately contacted our FBI and said, uh, this guy is offering us information from his employer, Akamai. And the FBI set up a classic sting operation. Apparently an agent, about a year after that first contact, got back in touch with Elliot and said, hey, you know, I'm with the whatever it is consulate and uh, we're interested. And so they recorded videos of him doing dead drops at a location which the IBM, which the FBI had set up and uh, ended up finally arresting this guy. Um, the thing that brought it to my attention was that it is the case that any cloud-based services are like, you know, Akamai living up in the Internet, being a, a content dis- distribution network, are vulnerable to insiders. And so the, the, the thing to just remain conscious of 
is that you really do want a technology which encrypts anything you're storing out in the cloud always. So before it leaves your machine, all that the cloud is doing, if possible, is storing a bunch of pseudo-random data and and not having access to what that contents is. Now, that's really not possible unless the the application that's running is designed correctly. And for purely web-based applications, it's arguably not possible at all. I mean, for example, the Google stuff is is understanding the contents of what you're saving and so we're trusting them with that you know i'm i'm now assembling the outline for our security now podcast every week in google docs and then exporting them as a pdf which i share with you but but i'm trusting google with this content now i'm only trusting them frankly because i don't care if you know, it's it's public anyway. It's going to be public. We're showing it. I mean, I'm reading it now. You're going to be posting it on various feeds. And I would be reluctant, frankly, to do, you know, sensitive corporate, really sensitive corporate documents this way at this point. I don't know how you do that safely. Hmm. But um, it is the case that insiders have access. And um, security people have been saying for a long time that... The I mean, like well, like the FBI when they look when they're looking at things, they're saying they're they're seeing that that it is people inside companies represent a bigger threat to companies, arguably, than outside attackers. Right. Outside attackers have the advantage of being anywhere in the world, operating over the internet, being anonymous, um, being able to attack with impunity. You know, in the middle of the night. Inside employees have the advantage of access. You know, I mean, there may be a door that's left ajar or, you know, they look, they turn somebody's keyboard upside down to get the password and then log in and, and so forth. So um, it is the case that all of these dangers are not from the outside. I think on this podcast, feel come talk to you and share. Just ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to to put that in your uh, your feed. Microsoft uh, uh, Facebook is streaming something live from Microsoft, and I just wanted to check in to see if it was anything that we cared about. I, I don't think it is. And spend some time with us and tell some of his thoughts about social and Facebook. Yawn. Okay, we're done. <laughs> Moving right along. Continue, Steve. Where were you? So anyway, I think on this podcast we d- we tend. I tend to focus more on the external threats and the technology because it interests me. And what are you going to do about the internal threats? Although for companies, certainly I think it's very necessary for them to remain diligent and and do what they can. I mean, you, you want to trust the people to work for you. The problem is you're extending your trust to all your customers when you're when you're someone who's offering cloud-based services and and somebody on the inside who has access can do tremendous damage to you know major proprietary interests that are moving their data out to the cloud so that just it's something we'll be talking about in the future because i'm mm-hmm. sure there'll be more problems with mm-hmm. it in the future mm-hmm. and something that is sort of cloud related also um i noted that charles schumer our um, Senator from New York has introduced a bill into Congress where 
it wants to extend existing electronic funds transfer consumer protections, which are which cap the liability for electronic funds transfer fraud at fifty dollars. Our liability, not the bank's liability. Correct. Caps yeah. our liability. Consumers yeah. are capped at fifty dollars. Chuck's um, uh, Chuck's bill would extend that to municipalities and schools. Oh, because lately that's where the, that spear phishing attack has been against municipalities, hasn't it? Well, yes. In fact, I pulled some numbers together here for this. Earlier this year, for example, three hundred and seventy-eight thousand dollars was transferred from a town, not probably coincidentally, in Poughkeepsie, New York, which is <laughs> yes. Chuck's home state. And that, that 378000 went to Ukraine. Um, also, $450,000 was stolen from Carson City, California. Uh, $600,000 from um, Brigantine, New Jersey. Um, not far away, a hundred thousand from Egg Harbor, from the Egg Harbor Township, also in New Jersey. Um, Three point eight million from Duanesburg Central School District, also in New York, Chuck's state. Um, and a chunk of that they were able to get back. They were able to get back three point three million of it, but still lost half a million, which was never recovered. Um, so. In, in most of these cases, it appears that the banking credentials were obtained by what we were talking about before, the infamous Zeus online banking credential stealing Trojan. Now, the question is, can banks absorb that kind of loss? I mean, what Chuck's bill is, is proposing to do is to limit a much larger entities than individual consumers, that is to say, you know, cities, towns, and school districts who have been, you know, having their money transferred off and, and out of their accounts due to electronic funds transfer fraud, limiting that to their liability the same as consumers. And so, of course, the, the, the banking um, industry lobbying groups are saying, whoa, 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 wait, whoa, wait a minute. You know, how can you make us responsible for these things? Um, what th from their perspective, they're seeing people logging in with valid, presenting valid credentials and asking to transfer money. And presumably these entities are routinely transferring money in and out of their accounts. And so this just looks like another valid transfer. So it'll be interesting. It's not clear that this is going to get through our Congress in this session. It may well be not till next year, in which case Chuck's going to have to reintroduce it. But um, it does remind me of the advice I've given to our listeners, which is, um, and I know that you heard this before, Leo, and may have taken action, and I have on my own corporate accounts, is it's possible to explicitly disable those features from accounts, typically with your bank. You say, I, we do not want, we do not use, do not need, and do not want electronic funds transfer to and from specific accounts. So disable them. 
And it's the kind of thing where, hey, they're on by default typically. And this, unless you tell your bank that, to turn them off, they they haven't. And so it just makes sense to, to dis, you know, from a, just a pure security standpoint, disable those things that you don't actively need. And uh, you may be glad you did. Because, um, I mean, it would be nice. Oh, I, I, sh- I should also mention that this does not extend to small, medium, or large-sized companies. So, mm-hmm. so Chuck's bill is extending this to municipalities and schools, but not to businesses. So businesses will still be vulnerable. And I did want to credit Brian Krebs, who uh, used to be with the Washington Post, now is blogging on his own. Um, he did a lot of reporting on this, um, and so that was useful when I was pursuing these details. I was an avid reader of his uh, security fix uh, column in the WAPO. Oh, and we talked about it often. often. I mean, I was often saying, yeah. hey, here's something that Brian you know, brought up. But I'm glad week. that he's still blogging and still talking about it. That's great. Yep. Yep. He's doing a great job. Facebook has now added one-time passwords. Yay! Yes. Uh, in a in a very recent last couple of days blog post, um, they announced one-time password support, which would be very useful in situations, for example, where you want to log into your Facebook account somewhere where, you know, you don't have 24-7 control of, of the security of the machine. The way it works is you need to register your cell phone number with your Facebook account. So, Add your, your cell phone phone number to your Facebook account. And when you, are, when you are somewhere that you want to log in using a one-time password, you text the string OTP to the number 32665. And you will immediately receive a password that can be used only once to log into your account and which in any event expires 20 minutes after that. So they've said they'll be rolling it out gradually, meaning it may not be available immediately upon, you know, you're hearing this on the podcast, but they've said it would be widely available within the next several weeks. So that's, you know, that's a nice step forward. I'm glad they're doing that. And I also saw in the same posting, although I feel like this is something we've talked about or maybe you talked about on another podcast, Leo, that they're adding the ability, or maybe it was Google, and they're following Google, to log you out of other sessions, which you may have left logged in, oh. where you know in other locations. So, for example, if you were over at a friend's house and logged in to your Facebook account using their system, if you went back home and then thought, ooh, shoot, I forgot to log myself out over there, you're able to log yourself in and using your account settings um, page, you can see any other places that you're currently logged in and then explicitly log those out there. So that's, you know, additional good security. I'm glad to see them them pursuing those things. They've, they've done a number of things. I get an email now every time I attach another device to Facebook for, uh, you know, uh, uh, sending information back and forth using OAuth. I think Facebook's paying a lot of attention to this. I might mention that the, there is a press conference going on right now. I've been watching it um, at Microsoft headquarters. Facebook is streaming it on their uh, Facebook uh, live streaming uh, page. And it looks like Facebook and Microsoft uh, Bing are going to do a deal. And uh, there's some speculation that perhaps 
Facebook will start using Bing as part of its Facebook Connect. But I, I do think that it's really important that Facebook pay attention to security since they are, in fact, now the interface for people to the web in many, many, many cases. That's why I felt it was worth bringing it up here. Yeah. I mean, I know you and I have been rough on Facebook from a privacy rights well, standpoint and, and, we'll, and enforcement standpoint. And we'll continue but, I mean, to be that way. Yes, but, you know, they just... I mean, I, you you can't get away from them. Right. And they're, I will praise just, them when they do the right thing, which they are right. doing here. Yeah. Yeah. And then in a little bit of a mystery, the UAE and BlackBerry, that is to say RIM, the makers of BlackBerry, have reached some sort of agreement. Their, their um, disconnection of BlackBerry services that had been threatened and widely reported um, has been canceled. And everybody's happy, and no one is saying why or how. That scares me more than the original <laughs> deal. <laughs> um, and Saudi Arabia and India have also both backed down. Really? Yeah. So hmm. um, the problem is, as I understand it, and maybe we'll do a podcast on this. I've, I've, I've pulled up all the technical documentation. I have the PDFs, which explain how the RIM technology works to be secure so that the data is available for understanding this and if rim is to be believed and certainly i believe them they have been saying all along that they are unable they are technologically unable to provide the kind of access that these countries want because of the because the way they originally designed the system didn't allow any sort of man in the middle eavesdropping, which is what the UAE, the, the Emirates have said that they require. So, I mean, I would like to believe that that the RIM execs sat down and explained this and said, look, we can't do anything about it. You either allow it or not, but here's the technology. Or maybe there is some way of establishing a, a man-in-the-middle server it's not clear, but um, when deliberately asked point blank, RIM has said, we will not discuss what was decided. It's proprietary. I can and, only uh, think that's bad for everybody. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I'm just a, maybe I'm paranoid or a pessimist. Um, the good news is there's a lot of people who have time on their hands, apparently, to plow into this. I will keep my, my ears peeled for any... Um, news of of what's going on. I imagine that people who look closely at the BlackBerry technology would be able to detect whether, for example, certificates had changed or certificate authorities had changed or what was going on. Um, so, um, I don't know. But hmm. I wanted to bring that to people's attention. And in my errata, we haven't had any errata for quite a while, but I got a kick out of the fact that the news... That jailbroken Kindles, it's now possible to jailbreak a Kindle, are able to run the original Zork. <laughs> I love it. From Infocom. <laughs> That's a text adventure. Exactly. That, that we nerds love. That's great. Exactly. And and it's perfect for a Kindle. Because, you oh, know, yeah. you it needs to something that, that's textual and sort of, you know, slow where you're typing instructions in and then it's telling you what you're seeing and, and what's going on and you're able to explore your environment. Um, 
I didn't realize that there were some apps. Amazon apparently has a couple free applications which they've developed and made available. And then Electronic Arts has released Scrabble for $5 for the Kindle. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Now, the problem, of course, is the Kindle is very UI challenged. And the apparently the Scrabble, EA's Scrabble game is pretty good, except you can't get to it yeah. because of the, you know, the rather sad user interface that the Kindle has. I mean, you really need to touch screen if you're going to do things that are very fancy. Um, and, and frankly, typing on the keyboard is a painful process, too. It's not something that you want to do that much. So, you know, the Kindle's got up, down, left, right navigation and a couple buttons, but really not much more than that. So I don't think we're going to see a big active, um, you know, gaming environment for the Kindle. And when, when, when Amazon, in fact, announced that they had created an SDK and opened it up for people, it's like, uh, okay, what are they going to do with this? But, you know, maybe we'll see something clever. It would be sort of interesting to me. I just think it's a perfect ebook reader. So... I'm happy. Yeah. And then one other little bit of news in Errata is that an analysis of where people use their iPads have found that they spend one-fifth of their time in bed. Hmm. That's, That's about really, right. Yeah. And we spend one-fifth of our life in bed? <laughs> More than that. A third. So apparently 20% of people's use of their iPads is they tuck themselves under the covers and then they turn on and they they read or they surf or they check their email or whatever it is they do. Who knows? But I thought that was sort of interesting and, yeah. and appropriate. Yeah. And then always on the outlook for some sort of a new um, testimonial for um, my own company, GRC and Spinrot, I have something different that I've never mentioned before. Um, and in fact, the subject was GRC's tech support, a different slant on a Spinrite success story. From Melbourne, Australia, Russell Phillips wrote, Hi, Steve. I would like to say thank you for providing such a great product in Spinrite, but thanks especially to Greg and the rest of your tech support team. Well, <laughs> Greg's probably looking around saying, uh, what, what team? It's just me. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's which a team. Is, a team of which one. Which is true. Yeah. Team of one. Uh, uh, Russell says, I purchased Spinrite a few weeks ago. Oh, sorry. A few years ago. I purchased Spinrite a few years ago after listening to you and Leo on Security Now. Perens love that show. Double exclamation point. And have used it on all my PCs and my kids' PCs and have never had a hard disk problem. Okay. Well, he's the poster boy for... This is the best thing you could possibly do is, you know, believe me when I say if you use Spinrite, your hard drives won't die or they won't have these problems, which is exactly what has been his experience. So he said what prompted this email was that I've purchased two new PCs this year, a Dell desktop and a Dell netbook and attempted to use Spinrite on them as soon as I received them. Unfortunately, I could not get them to boot into Spinrite whatever I tried. I purchased the desktop first, and after a number of attempts to run Spinrite, I contacted Greg in your tech support department. We'll put that in quotes because, you know, that's Greg at home. Um, after a couple of emails back and forth and following his advice, I had Spinrite running on the desktop without a hitch. 
Apparently, the problem was due to the configuration of the hard drive's settings in the PC's BIOS, which Greg knew all about and was able to help me fix. Fast forward a couple of months, and I purchased a netbook. Again, I could not get Spinrite to boot from a USB drive since this netbook has no CD. So I contacted Greg again. He responded immediately. And again, his advice was spot on. And I am now sitting here with Spinrite running on the netbook without a hitch. I just needed to configure a bootable USB drive correctly. So again, a big thanks to you, not only for producing Spinrite, but also for having such a helpful and prompt tech support team, in quotes, standing behind you. Keep up the good work at GRC and also with Leo. I look forward to each episode of Security Now, and I'm always learning something new. Thanks again from a fan in Australia. Sincerely, Russell Phillips. How sweet. So, Steve, we will uh, continue in just a little bit with Security Now, uh, and I want to find out more about the Evercookie. But before we go much farther, I would also like to mention our good friends at Carbonite, the best backup ever for folks who... uh, who are in business. Now, I've talked about Carbonite for consumers. This is Carbonite Pro for the small business. And I have to really ask you, you know, if 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 you don't have a really robust backup strategy for your business and you are risking your business data, I just want you to do a little mind exercise with me. What would happen if you lost the computers and the backup sitting right next to them? What if there were a fire in your business and everything burned? Would you be prepared to take to continue tomorrow? Would you have a business tomorrow? Would you have a business ever again? I think for a lot of people who don't have a good backup strategy, that's the disaster scenario. That's why Carbonite Pro is very important. And we really strongly encourage you to take a look at Carbonite Pro, a very affordable solution for backing up your data uh, off-site, where it is safe no matter what happens to the building you're in or the town you're in. CarbonitePro.com. Go there right now and you can take a look. It's free for 30 days, so you can really get a sense. It has a, a centralized a backup utility so that your enter, you know, IT person or whoever's in charge of the of the enterprise, maybe you're, for me, it'd probably be my, uh, my VP of engineering, or some of you might be your HR person, can keep an eye on what's going on. Make sure everything's backed up. You're, it, it, there is no per seat cost. You pay by the amount of data you back up only which means it's very affordable. If you have 10 desks, each with two gigs to back up, that's a $10 a month fee. $10 a month! If you had 100 desks, each with two gigs to back up, 150 bucks a month. We're talking the most affordable enterprise backup and the most secure and the easiest to use out there right now. It's Carbonite Pro. I want you to take a look at it right now. Try it free for a month. Just go to CarbonitePro.com. Your users can restore not only on their computer if they accidentally delete that spreadsheet the boss needs tomorrow, but also uh, if you lose everything online on any computer, you just log into your Carbonite Pro account. There's even a free iPhone app and a BlackBerry app that works with Carbonite Pro as well. CarbonitePro.com. Try it free for 30 days. If you don't have a backup solution, I'd invite you to consider Carbonite Pro. I think you need Carbonite Pro. On again with security now. Sorry for the uh, interruption, Steve. No problem at all. Very gracious. What's cool about the Evercookie is that um, its designer, Sammy Kamkar, has produced an open source, freely downloadable, available API, which exploits in some clever ways the, essentially, what can be done with scripting. So, 
Um, the New York Times picked on picked up on it, as I mentioned on on yeah, on the binary day ten ten ten. Um, had a story titled "New Web Code Draws Concern Over Privacy Risks," and they focused on some features primarily of HTML five, which actually does have a number of features which are of a concern from a privacy standpoint. But but what Sammy did is he developed a suite of 10 different ways, many of them clever, that we're going to talk about in detail, of inducing our computers to accept, store, and return an immutable token. So we know what that means. That means a means of tracking us, a means of of following us as we move around the internet, which is, you know, traditionally what standard HTTP browser cookies have done. Many people understand the concerns about browser cookies. They've got third-party cookies turned off. They're, they flush their cookies when their browser stops. I mean, there's, 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 you know, the original HTTP cookies have been around for so long that all kinds of tools have been developed to aid people who are who are annoyed by that behavior to get some control. Um, what, what, what Sammy did was, was look at beyond what the panoptic, the, the, the panopticlick guys at the, uh, at the electronic frontier foundation did. Um, he said, okay, what, what's possible to do using scripting and, all the features of a contemporary browser. So in his own FAQ, his frequently asked questions on his page, he, he asks the question of himself, what, what if the user deletes their own cookies? And Sammy replies, that's the great thing about EverCookie. With all the methods available, currently 10, it only takes one of those cookies to remain for most, if not all, of the rest to be reset again. For example, if the user deletes their standard HTTP cookies, their LSO, that the, that's the locally shared objects data that Flash uses, and for example, all HTML5 storage, the PNG cookie and history cookies will still exist. Once either of those is discovered, all of the others will come back again. So so the the first thing I want to make sure people get is that is that he's he's storing a single token in he's basically squirreling it away in many different places every every place he can think of and then when you revisit a page that is using this evercookie technology which is now freely available the the script on the page will look in each of those different little squirrel holes to see whether that that immutable token has survived that cookie essentially and if so it says ah good here's an instance of it i only needed to find one and then if any of the nine others had been deleted it refreshes them that is it you know, reestablishes them so that this thing basically holds on really hard. So let's look at 
where he's storing this stuff because this is where where the fun and the cleverness is. First of all, he does use traditional HTTP cookies. So standard web browser cookies um, he will take advantage of. Um, and as we know, unfortunately, even today, third-party cookies are enabled by default So and, and first-party cookies are. So in general, your browser will accept a cookie from a page you visit. With this EverCookie code, what that means is that upon that happening, immediately that cookie value is spread throughout your system um, using scripting on the page, squirreling it away in case you should deliberately flush your cookies, disable the cookies, delete that cookie. Um, it doesn't matter. It's already gone many other places within your browser. Um, it of course, uses flash cookies, the so-called LSO, the local shared objects, which is technically configurable using um, the macromedia domain. Um, you're able supposedly to turn that off. And we were talking just recently on the podcast a week or two ago that the UI seemed a little tricky for me because I thought I had turned it off and I looked at the other tabs in the UI and I went back and they had it hadn't taken the offness. However, the day later, I looked and it had stayed off. So maybe it just needed to be told twice. Who knows? Um, the one thing that is interesting about Flash cookies that's worth noting is it bridges browsers. Since you've got a single instance of Flash installed in your system, which surfaces on different browsers. For example, you know, IE has Flash, Firefox has Flash, Opera has Flash, these things, you know, and, and of course, Safari. Um, the idea is that that represents a single point of contact. So if you're, if you, if the ever cookie had stored itself among every, everywhere else in Flash and you brought up a different browser and went to the same site, then on that domain, multiple browsers are sharing the same instance of the local shared objects in Flash, which means that the EverCookie would be able to jump into a different browser. So that's worth noting as well. Silverlight, which of course is Microsoft's next generation, essentially sort of competitor to Flash, Silverlight offers something called isolated storage, which is essentially local shared objects from Microsoft. Um, and on Microsoft's page, they say, quote, in Silverlight, there's no direct access to the operating system's file system, except through the open file dialog box. However, developers can use isolated storage, that's their name for it, to store data locally on the user's computer. There are two ways to use isolated storage. The first way is to save or retrieve data as key value pairs by using the isolated storage settings class. The second way is to save or retrieve entire files by using the isolated storage file class. So here is that we kind have, of a sandbox, the isolated storage? Well, it's it's actually it's Microsoft's solution for wanting some means for allowing persistent their Silverlight technology, yeah. yes, yeah. to store to be persistent. Right. And the bad news is it's tracking. I mean, it's right. absolutely 
tracking technology. And I haven't discovered any sort of a UI that Silverlight has. I don't know if there is one squirreled away somewhere, but I haven't found it. And so, I mean, it'd be like, it'd be nice if there was some way of disabling that or examining it, browsing it, looking at it, filtering it, you know, controlling it somehow. Otherwise, we don't even have as much control as the little control that we have with flash cookies. Well, those two are the obvious methods. Okay. <laughs> now he gets sneaky. I love this one. So um, Apple first introduced something in WebKit, um, which they called the HTML, HTML Canvas, which was used for dashboard widgets and also in Safari. An HTML Canvas is a scriptable rectangular area of space on your browser page where JavaScript is able to draw. Now, we've had scalable vector graphics, SVG, for a while. And that's cool. That's, you know, vector-based, sort of like Adobe Illustrator or Corel Draw. You know, it's instead of being pixels, it's lines and arcs and curves and so forth. And what's cool about that is, as the name implies, it's physically scalable. If you're able to, you know, stretch it out if your screen is larger or it's able to squeeze itself down by doing everything with vectors. Apple wanted to give to essentially have the same sort of power, but with bitmaps, with, with you know regular pixel images. So they introduced it. Then it was adopted by the Gecko browsers. So Firefox has it, as do Opera and Chrome. It's then moved into the HTML5 standard. IE9 doesn't quite have it. It's not clear whether it's going to get it or not, but. You know, I wouldn't be surprised because Microsoft's making a lot of noise about IE9 being so standards compliant and passing all the various, you know, torture tests and so well, forth. And it's HTML5. Everybody's right. Canvas, it's the same one as HTML5 Canvas, right? Yes. So yes. If, okay, if you're going to support so, HTML5, you've got to do it. You don't have a so choice. Here, so here's the idea. A, a web page using this technology has an image on it and it asks the server... Hey, um, what's the value? You know, like you know, it, it makes it a standard request for the image. The server that has obtained or knows what the cookie is for this session, as it as it would, designs an image where the values of the cookie is stored in the RGB, the red, green, blue pixel values of the image which it returns to the browser with a 20-year expiration so this png image for all intents and purposes doesn't expire it turns out that scripting is able to load a browser image into the canvas this html canvas and the the HTML Canvas API is a full pixel drawing API that allows you not only to set pixel values, but to read them. So this is a means of storing a cookie in an image 
which the script has access to. And by reading literally the color values. Oh, my God. (laughs) By reading the color values in the image, it's able to extract the cookie's value. You mean they store it in the RGB? Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's that's steganography. Yes, it is. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So so you could again as as Sammy indicated earlier in his FAQ, you could flush everything else. But if you forget one thing, if you didn't also flush your image your image cache for that domain, living in the image cache is a tiny PNG with the cookie stored in it. And when you come back to the page, Script will load that into the HTML canvas and take advantage of this pixel-level drawing API to obtain the RGB color values, and those are the value of the cookie, which then recreates all the other ones that you did delete. Okay, now that was good. This next one is beyond good, and this is... (laughs) This is the one where I said, okay, you know, this guy gets an award. It's pretty, actually, I could see why he published this because it's like, look what I did. Oh, I'm not happy about it, however. Now, back in 06, Jeremiah Grossman, and we talked about this then, four years ago, came up with a very cool hack um, where he could tell you what sites you had visited. Because CSS has this notion of visited links. And as, as you know, anyone using a web browser knows, when you oftentimes you'll, you'll look at a page and some of the links will be colored differently. And you look at it and it's like, oh, yeah, I've already been there. So it's a nice visual cue to allow you to see what links, what URLs you've already gone to. So CSS colors them differently. JavaScript being very powerful and being a full language allows the, the, the JavaScript language allows the programmer to query the color of a URL, thus telling you whether you have, telling the script whether you have been sort of by implication to that URL or not. That, you know, JavaScript doesn't even have a, an explicit way of querying that. So this is a hack. This, this is like information leakage that was never intended as part of JavaScript. But by saying, what color is this href on the page, the script can infer. So here's what Sammy figured out. He said, okay, how can I, how can I store a cookie with that information? And he figured out how. He once he's got his, he, he has the cookie value that he wants to store. He converts it. He uses base sixty four to convert it just to ASCII, so that you know, like the cookie could be like a URL, just upper and lower case A through Z, zero through nine, and a couple other characters gives you sixty four different an alphabet of sixty four characters. He has his script manually access a URL. And for the sake of example, we'll say google.com slash evercookie slash cache 
And then say that, for example, after he's converted the URL, in uh, the, the cookie, into ASCII, say that the first character, and I'm using his example because it's simple, is B. So he attempts to access with his script google.com slash evercookie slash cache slash B. Then he accesses the same thing dot BC if the second character of the converted cookie was C. Then he accesses BCD. Then he accesses BCDE. And finally, BCDE hyphen. That being the 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 cue that that's the end of the cookie. Now, so what he's done is he has set history. He said, I have visited those four URLs ending in slash B, BC, BCD, and BCDE. And then, I'm sorry, five URLs and BCDE hyphen. Those five URLs. He's, he's set the history memory in the browser so that if it ever encounters encounters those URLs again, CSS will color them differently. And this can all be done. You're not seeing any of this on the page. This is done sort of at the script level. So now here's what he does. When you next come to the page, he successively tries slash A, okay, the wrong color. That is, he his script builds a URL, then checks the color of it. All, the, all behind the scenes, none of it visible. All, right, none of this is visible. His script builds the URL with slash A, checks the color of it. And it's like, oh, that's the non-visited color. Then he, So he disables, he, 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 he deletes that one and builds the same URL slash B. Oh, that's the visited color one which means slash B is the beginning of the cookie. Then he says, okay, I got the first character. So he takes that URL apart, and now he goes to slash BA. Nope, that's not visited. Slash BB. Nope, that's not visited. Slash BC. Oops, that's visited. So now he has the first two characters. And you can see the reason he visited those URLs in succession, he's, he's, he's left himself a trail of breadcrumbs through this history that allows him to ex- essentially ex- brute force explore, but character by character reveal the, the ASCII value of the cookie until he gets to B, C, D, E, and then he gets to, he tries the hyphen, and he says, ah, that's, I've reached the end. Now he's got the ASCII, which he uses, he uses to, with base 64 again, to turn it back into what it was before, if it wasn't already ASCII, and he's recovered the cookie using the, the history of where you have browsed. So, if I right now, and we've, and we've only covered what four out of the ten, uh huh. <laughs> but if I cleared cookies, cleared flash cookies, cleared Silverlight storage, I don't know what I do about pings. Flushed your browser cache, flushed cache, and flushed history. I've now deleted those four techniques. Yes, but we're not done, and you have to do all of them. <laughs> <Just> anyone. <laughs> 
anyone that survives. That's what's interesting. Reconstitutes the rest. Repopulates it. So yes. only one of the ten has to survive. Yes. Wow. There's also a, a tag, a standard HTML tag, which I don't think we've ever had occasion to talk about. Um, it's been around for a long time. I've seen it. Anyone looking at browser headers will have noticed it. It's called the e-tag. Um, the idea is that browsers want to know if their copy of something that they have cached, like you know, like images for a page, is still current. The way that's normally done is there that when the server issues a resource, like an image, there will be an expiration date associated with it. We were just talking about expiration dates relative to this PNG cookie. There'll be an expiration date associated with it. And it'll say, you know, it, and it's called the expires tag. And it'll say expires, you know, 1-1-2020, you know, 10, 10 years from now. And so the browser stores not only the image, but the expiration date, which allows it to say, okay, you know, the the um, I've got a copy and I don't need to ask for it again. It's also possible for the browser to 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 make a request and store the date that it cached this object, and and it's able to make a request called if modified since, which which allow where the browser then says, here's the date that I have this. Give it to me if it's been modified since. And if, if it hasn't been, the, the server checks. And if it hasn't been modified since that date, the server repo- responds with, a, with an, a return code of 304 not modified, telling the browser, hey, it's good to go. Use the one you've got. I, you don't, we don't need to take up time with me sending it to you again. Well, the, there was a concern that um, it would be nice also to have something more like a signature so that if something was changed, even though, I mean, the date thing ought to be enough, but, you know, the developer said, hey, let's create like a, like a digital signature. It's called the e-tag. And so it's just an arbitrary string, which the server is also able to provide. So when the browser says, hey, you know, I need this image, the server says, well, here's the expires tag telling you formally how long I think you could keep it. But here's also an e-tag, which is just, it's just an opaque token. It might, and, the, and the server can generate it any way it wants to. It could be like a digital signature, like a hash of the contents of that image. So if, it, if anything changed in it and then it was rehashed, it would create a different signature. So the browser stores... The image, the expiration date, and this e-tag value all together. And when it's later bringing up a page, it sends the e-tag back to the server um, with a header if none match. So the idea being, this is the one I've got. If it doesn't, if the e-tag I have doesn't match the e-tag you have, then I want a fresh copy. Well, what Sammy realized, and I guess this, it seems in retrospect obvious, but apparently no one's done it before. It's an opaque token. It's a cookie. I mean, it's 
it, and you don't want, and this one scares me, you don't even need scripting for it. So far, the stuff we've talked about is heavily scripting-based. HTTP cookies are not, and unfortunately, well, and to some degree, Flash and Silverlight are, because if you had scripting disabled, they're not going to run. But, and the other things are heavily scripting-based. But this e-tag is just like an HTTP cookie. And, and you know, it's the, the browser asks for something, and the server sends it an e-tag, which it stores. So you, do, you would need scripting to read the e-tag value. So it, it, it wouldn't work without scripting, but it definitely is an opaque token, which we're not thinking about right now. I mean, we haven't been for all these years. So Sammy thought about it and added it to his JavaScript, which allows it to be used for tracking. Wow. So there's another one. <laughs> so and we, I'm sure at the end we'll talk about ways to fight this, but... Um... <laughs> you know, I guess no script would fight the ability of a of a, a site to retrieve that cookie, but they could set it without JavaScript. Correct. Yeah, correct. Right. It it could be set, and then if at any time later you had ah. scripting on, there um, you go. Oh, but wait a minute. No, that would only be if the if the script if the script cared for the purpose of reconstituting all the other ones. Ah. Even but without, at least he could get the cookie without yes, rebuilding. Correct. Well, even without scripting, a given instance of the browser would be sending back that same e-tag. So for tracking, the e-tag is 100% effective, just like an HTTP cookie is. And uh, you do not need scripting. So even if no script was enabled... Unless something was explicitly filtering e-tags, you're trackable. You can't, you're, the scripting on the client side, on the browser, would be necessary for repopulating all the other cookies and keeping all these multiple ways of tracking you synchronized. But the e-tag by itself is all you need for tracking, and we have no control over it, no Mm -hmm control through the user interface at all. So there, only flushing your cache, flushing the browser cache, would flush the images and the associated e-tags. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And we're now, not done. <laughs> we're not done. <laughs> there's more. But turns wait, out, there's more. <laughs> turns out that the document object model, the DOM, for standard state-of-the-art browsers has a actually not very often used um, property for Windows called name, where a window can be named. Most windows, and by window, we mean like the surface that you're, you know, the programmers call like the page you're seeing a window from a, from a standpoint like the, the that, that, that's the terminology used in the scripting internally. And it's not very useful because no one's ever really cared before. But someone realized, hey, you know, that's sticky. So, like, it would be a way of creating a session cookie. It doesn't persist across browser restarts, but it persists as you move around in a site. So, it's not useful for, for like, intercession tracking, but it's very useful for 
tracking a user moving through a website who might have disabled first and third part uh, third party cookies. Most people have third party or first party cookies enabled because so many things don't work at all if you don't enable first party cookies. And so this is sort of an alternative first party cookie. The one thing that's a, a concern about this is is that the name of the page like the tab or the page is what's named and if you click a url to go to a different domain the page name doesn't change so it does create an opportunity for cross domain leakage and that's a bit of a privacy concern whereas for example cookies at least are domain specific you know if if uh, amazon.com gives you a cookie then there's no way that that Microsoft.com is able to read it. It's only it's only using third-party cookies of, with assets that are appearing on a page that someone like DoubleClick.net, for example, is able to track you across domains. So, so there's. But again, Sammy's taking advantage of it. And if, for example, you were on a page and then you deleted a bunch of stuff and you thought you'd cleaned yourself up completely, well, he's named the page the value of the cookie. So the next thing you do on on that site that's using his ever cookies would might say, wait a minute, I don't seem to be finding any of my cookies here. But if it looked at the page, that would be where the cookie had the one place you couldn't get to. And actually, you can't. There's no way a user can delete that when they're when they're sitting there on the site. They're you know the page has been named sort of secretly it's not the title not the title that you see it's sort of an internal programmer level handle um that scripting could use and we have no we as users have no access to it so you you might think that whew i just successfully deleted everything and then everything would just instantly come back because the page has a name and he'd squirreled away the value of the cookie there also internet explorer has its own user data extension. And I've, for years, I've just sort of turned off in IE, back when I was an IE user, user data persistence. And you may remember, Leo, in, in like in the advanced tab of, of Internet Explorer, there would be, you know, you could disable user data persistence. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, okay, that sounds like a good thing to do. Yeah, so, well, yeah. If you knew what it uh, was, you, maybe. Thank you very much. I don't know what it is, but I don't want it to be persistent. Yeah. Well, turn it off. Anyway, it's disappeared oh, from the UI. Can't turn that off anymore. No longer available to turn it off. I presume it's a cookie-like uh, function, though, right? Oh, yeah. It's not sinister. It is. It's, it's, a, it's a way. And, but the good news is it's Microsoft only. No one has adopted it. It hasn't gone into standards or anything. And maybe it'll fade away sort of the way, you know, VB script has, you know, something Microsoft tried to do and it didn't right. take. Um, so it's just one more way. And Sammy is using it because most people are still using IE in the world. And now you can't even turn it off through the user interface. So it's it's the same sort of thing. It's a it's a site specific place where where script is able to squirrel away some information and it's persistent as its name implies user data persistence which allows it to identify you or you know basically whatever information you wanted to state to, to store about you and obtain it at, at some later session so 
There's all of those. I think we're at six now. There are four more that we can kind of lump together. Unfortunately, they're part and parcel with HTML5. HTML5 in the formal spec. So far, everything we've talked about has sort of been, you know, uh, well, they've they've been out in left or right field somewhere. Proprietary in some way. Yeah, well, or standards-based. Screwy, like, you know, setting bit values and pixels and (laughs) and things. These are formally part of the HTML5 spec. They're session storage, local storage, which is inherently persistent, global storage, and then even an SQL Lite um, for people who have installed SQL Lite, you know, SQL database on their system. There's um, in the HTML5 spec is a is the SQL Lite subset for allowing scripting to do database things on your computer. Now the good news is most people probably aren't aren't installing it. I, on the one place I was playing with this uh, this morning, you know, it said, okay, I don't know about that. Oh, in fact, I should mention Sammy's page lets you do these things. He has an Explore the Evercookie oh, feature. So you can go samy.pl slash evercookie. And up at the top of the page is a button that you can press to set yourself an Evercookie, ah, which is just a on your system. On your own system. Yeah. Which is just so basically he's using his own script on his own page at your request to establish a cookie it's just a it's just an integer value one through a thousand and he says don't worry i'm not using this to track you this is just for demo and then you can press another button to to try to read back the cookie that's been stored and it all works um i found several things that it it didn't get my png image value correct it was off by 300. Actually, my my cookie value was 140 or was, was 447, and the PNG recovery was 147. So there's a little bug in his code somewhere, um, and I'm using a high color system, so I don't think that's what it was. But you know, I'm sure he'll fix it. And I just like yesterday, he added the silver light technology. So this is still a little bit of a work in progress. I think he's at like 0.4 of his beta or something. So, um, oh, I'm so glad it's going to get better. Yeah, isn't that nice? <laughs> and it's public domain and open source, and everyone's free to grab it yeah, and use it to lock well, I'm on. Sure, it. they all have by now. Uh huh. And so, in his FAQ at the very end, he says he asks the question: Can it be stopped? And he did say that private browsing in Safari will stop all Evercookie methods after a browser restart. So Apple's Safari private browsing is robust enough to just shut all this down. Um, it, I mean, you that private browsing creates a sandboxed environment such that nothing persistent leaks, and that's good news. And for for the rest of us, for example, Firefox users, our good old friend NoScript is highly effective. Oh, good, but. For example, it doesn't deal with e-tags. I've never seen anything that does. Right. So uh, e-tags look like a very nice, uh, well, nice in, 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 his, matter, 
<laughs> yeah, nice for anyone who wants to track you means of tracking people. And now that this is spread, I'm sure we'll see it popping up as as you know a, a tracking means all over the place. Maybe um, our our no script friend will will add that. And I was going to ask. So you could, in theory, you could protect against all of this now that people are aware of it by building it into no script or something. Well, like that. yes. Now, okay. So here's the. Here's the real takeaway from all this. I mean, because what we've seen is a bunch of very clever things that a script can do. I mean, this notion of of uh, hiding a cookie in RGB values of an image, which which the uh, the HTML Canvas API allows you to access, or a very cleverly hiding it in a hierarchy of visited links which, again, scripting allows you to access. What this is really telling us is we've lost the war. Yeah. That if you've got scripting running in your browser, you've got code which you've accepted from the site you're visiting, and they can pretty much do what they want to if if scripting is allowed to um, uh, to run. You know, it's code. Yeah. And if it wants to, it wants to st- st- store things on your system for the purpose of identifying you when you come back later. It's pretty much going to be able to. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating subject, I have to say, and um, I guess uh, you can't really fault Sammy for releasing the information because, uh, you know, presumably others could have figured this out. Yeah, it's better that it's in the public domain and that we all know what can be done. Yeah. So people don't have a false sense of, oh, look, no one's going to be able to track me. I'm sneaky. It's like, yeah, well, <laughs> if, I mean, what it really says is something like a fully sandboxed browser or, as we've talked about before, booting an environment from a CD and doing your surfing. I mean, if you're really that concerned about it, doing your CD in an environment where nothing is written to your hard drive but it's all in RAM, and then when you shut that session down, you, you've disappeared. Nothing persistent from, from one visit to a next. Basically, this raises the bar to the point where that's now the only way to be safe. Or I guess a virtual machine, too, if you... Uh, well, well let, me, let me ask this question. So when you say one. safe, what is the uh, risk of this kind of thing? Good, good point. Good point. And that's absolutely worth reminding people is all we're talking about is tracking. We're talking about some site knowing that they they saw you, you uniquely you, you know, a week ago. And maybe not who you are, but just same entity came over and visited the, the, the site, right. which many people kind of shrug off. It's like, hey, I don't care. I, well, I mean, no. So, in fact, it's kind of functional uh, for a lot of sites. It's why it persistence. very useful. I mean, right from day one, Netscape created cookies. They call them persistent client-side state information. Cookies is probably a little bit more colloquial, but uh, persistence is something a browser wants. It's it's convenient. Certainly, yes. Certainly, within a browsing session, you all today you virtually need it. I you mean, you, the whole concept of logging on to a site is one of establishing state and identity and now as you move through the site and we think amazon or ebay or msn you would want to log into every page as you go 
No, you'd literally you it, it wouldn't work at all. I yeah. mean, you 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 couldn't you couldn't do anything we use the web for now unless there was a way of you identifying yourself even for that session and then having that be sticky because remember each each um display of a web page and a query for the next web page when you click a button or click a link that's a whole separate transaction that isn't linked to your prior page unless i guess the only way to do it would be to encode your identity in the urls right. and that's a, yeah, you know that's even a, worse. a nightmare but that so it's important that's how that people need to understand that and if you don't know how the structure of, the, of surfing works you may not understand that each transaction is separate and unattached so you need something persistent across transactions even within a single visit to a website uh otherwise it's, it's hideously inconvenient or unusable entirely and frankly, it is also useful to then be able to say, leave me logged in for today, for right. 24 hours. Right. Or and just remember my password. Right. And or so you're, able to, you're able to come you're able to come back within a reasonable time and say, hey, it's still me, right. um, and, and right. without having to go through the burden of being logged in again. Right. So. so some persistence is necessary. Uh, persistence in and of itself is not necessarily bad. And so here's the problem. We would like in a... In a, in a properly working world to give the power to the user to say, for, for, for users to be able to say, I only want specific sites that I permit to track me. And we don't have that today. Right, right. That's what you'd like. You'd and like that's to no say. Script. That's what no script does. It says no scripts unless I say, okay. Right. But again, against this, it's only partially effective. Yeah, and not enough. Yeah, very. Ah, oh, just fascinating. I'm glad you decided to cover this. Um, Sammy's got it all. We've got links to everything. Uh, Sammy's got a discussion of it all, and you can go there. It's uh, s a m y dot p l. He's a prolific son of a gun. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at all his little projects. He's a very busy guy. I like his website too. It's a, it's like a Windows start page. It's very clever. S-A-M-Y.P-L. Steve Gibson it doesn't use so many scripts on his page, so you, it doesn't look like a one star page. <laughs> if you go to GRC.com, you'll see what I mean. But let me tell you, it's all there, including Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive and maintenance utility. Uh, all of the great free programs Steve gives away. And, of course, this podcast, 16 kilobit and 64 kilobit versions available, full transcriptions and notes as well. And we do it as well because it's a Twit podcast. You'll find it at twit.tv slash SN. And you can watch live. We record live every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv. Next week, because Apple's having an event on a Wednesday, we're going to flip-flop with Mac Break Weekly. So... Security Now will be Tuesday at 11 Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And uh, Mac Break Weekly will be in this slot next week so that we can cover the live Apple announcement, whatever it might be. Steve, great to talk to you. Always, Leo. A pleasure. Talk to you next week on Tuesday. Security Now. Bye-bye. Security Now.